If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to get them and look with me to Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. Today we begin our Christmas series called A Christmas Gift, and we're going to focus on each week a a wonderful gift that God has given us at Christmas. And, you know, Karen and I, I think most people already know, but Karen and I, we have three children. They're all grown. They're all married, all living in three different states. And so it was a just a great blessing for us this year to be able to have them all with us at Thanksgiving. We just enjoyed that time together. Unfortunately, uh, we uh, won't be able to repeat that at Christmas due to all the you know people involved and all the schedules and and so Karen, being the uh, wise planner that she is, she already bought all the kids Christmas gifts and she has wrapped them so that. Uh, the, those that we wouldn't see at Christmas, she, uh, they could take them with her. So it was interesting because as they were kind of carrying out their gifts and loading them up in, in the car, one of them says, wow, Dad, this is going to be really hard not to open this before Christmas. And I said, yeah, I can, I can understand that, you know, because wrapped uh, Gifts just kind of bring curiosity, some anticipation. You know, wrapped gifts hold a promise for us, you know. What could be in there? You know, it could be the Turbo Man that I've been wanting, you know, for Christmas. You just never know, you know. It's excitement. Uh, But we know that we can't open them until Christmas. And, but... I know several people who have confessed to me (laughs) that they sometimes sneak under the Christmas tree, pull out the presents with their name on them, carefully unwrap them, see what's inside, sometimes play with what's inside, and then wrap it back and put them back under the Christmas tree. They just can't wait until Christmas. Now, some people are... Are, are like that. But today, we don't have to wait, because today we're going to unwrap uh, a, a wonderful gift that God has given us at Christmas. It's, it's, a, it's a gift that's wrapped in the pages of Scripture. It's just one of the prophecies that God has given us before He sent His Son into the world, hundreds of years before that. And just like, you know, that that gift that's under the tree with your name on it, it's yours, it belongs to you, you're not really sure all that it consists of, but but it's yours, and you know that you can't open it until Christmas. This prophecy is kind of like that. You see, uh, these prophecies uh, concerning the coming of Jesus promised that God has this wonderful gift for us, but these gifts do not come to our understanding or to uh, our being able to take advantage of them fully until the time that God has designed, until Christmas in this case. And the promises belong to God, 
or the promises that God made to his people belong to us, but they couldn't be opened until Christmas. So, so let's read about this incredible gift that God has given us. In Micah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain, because in that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. Let's pray. Our Father, we are, we are grateful for the promise of this prophecy that you have given us. And today we, we pray that you would help us to unwrap it in our thinking and our understanding and to see uh, the glory and the wonder of the gift that you give us. I, I pray for those that are already believers that this would just be an encouragement a strengthening, a reinforcement of faith. I pray for those that have never truly trusted you. That today, that they were, their hearts would be moved, that they would see the, what you offer to them, and that they would be open to receiving the gift that you have for them. Lord, I, I pray you would uh, help me not to be a hindrance, but help me to speak in a way that would be uh, beneficial to the understanding of your people for your glory through Christ. Amen. Amen. You know, Micah wrote 700 years before the promised Messiah came. That's an incredible thought. You know, think about it. 700 years before. And, and in that sense, God's promises are, are, are like a, you know, a gift wrapped up. It, it, was, it was hidden to some degree. We, we know it's there, but we don't understand it fully. And so it, it, we're looking at something that it holds promise for us. It's exciting. It brings anticipation. But we haven't really understood it at this point, the fullness and the greatness of, and wonder of the gift that God has given to us. And so uh, we know now, as we look back, we can see this great gift. And so think about this. The prophecies that, that were given were sure promises. But they, for these people, they were future promises. Today we're looking back on, on the reality. It's a, it's a past promise. But there's also some prophecy here that is yet future for us. Now, this is, this is really important for people to understand because when we hear a passage about 
uh, the coming of Christ at Christmas, we often miss a vital part of this prophecy. Whenever a prophet foretold the future, it was to awaken his people to their responsibilities in the present. You see, prophecy was not something for the curious. Prophecy was for people, it was for the encouragement of people who were serious about following God. And anytime we look at prophecy in the Old Testament, there was an immediate fulfillment of that prophecy, something that happened in that time, and there is also a greater fulfillment that occurs later in time, a, a future fulfillment, as it were. And so, um, for, for example, I'll give you an example from the New Testament. You know, Jesus said, uh, tear down this temple, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will build it again. He was talking about his resurrection. Then Jesus went to Bethany, and he, he raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. And, and then he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And so Jesus made this promise. Jesus demonstrates his ability to raise people from the dead. And then he goes to the cross, takes upon himself our sin, suffers our penalty, which is death. He's buried, and then he raises from the dead. And his disciples see him, and he becomes now that immediate fulfillment of the promise of resurrection he has raised from the dead. But you and I, for that, for you and I, that's yet future. How do we believe, how do we believe that, why do we believe that we will be raised from the dead? Because Jesus has already demonstrated very clearly that he has the power to raise people from the dead. And so we, we live in faith based on that immediate fulfillment. See, that immediate fulfillment is what gives people in the, in the immediate time the faith to trust God for the future. And that was the case here with Micah and other prophets of this day. There was an immediate prophecy. You see, Micah's prophecy had meaning to the people who lived in that time. And, and, and that's the, but the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy was in the coming of Christ. Now understand, prophecies are intentionally vague. Prophecies are not meant to give us all the details about the future. It's not a fortune teller. Be, you see, prophecies are intended to give us a glimpse of the future to instill hope and to give us uh, something on which to base our faith for trusting God in the days ahead. And all the things that we will have to face, all the things that we will have to endure, we, we have to trust God in the midst of that. So the prophets, understand, the prophets often move from the present to the future, back to the present, without any transitions, without any explanation of the time shifts. They're simply telling us, and when we put it all together, you and I, we have a, it becomes a kind of a wrapped up gift. It, we know it's there, it holds promise for us, but we don't understand all of it. 
where we have an anticipation and an expectation of when we're going to open it. And, and, and such is the case here. There are several time gaps that, if you don't understand them, some of it doesn't make sense to you. Let me give you some context as to what was going on in the time of Micah. Uh, it was a divided kingdom. The, the northern kingdom was called Israel. The capital at that time was Samaria. In the south, uh, that was referred to as Judah. It was the dominant tribe, that and Benjamin. And the, the capital there was Jerusalem. The, the kings that were uh, in, in, in place at that time, Pekah, Hoshea in the north, you have Isaiah and Micah in the south. Then uh, the prophets, you have Amos and Hosea, prophesying in the north. You have Isaiah, uh, Micah uh, in, the, in the south. Did I say Isaiah and Micah for the kings? It was Ahaz and, and Hezekiah. Sorry about that. Um, but they were, they, they were these kings and the, and the prophets. They had a common enemy, Assyria, the most powerful, vicious nation in the world at that time, uh, a dominating army. They had the whole known world under their power, even the Babylonians at that time. And and when they came against the northern kingdom, uh, the Hoshea the, the rebelled against the king of Assyria and rebelled against God. And as a result, according to the prophecies of Amos and Hosea, the kingdom was destroyed. They fell. They ceased to exist in 722 B.C. But, but then they kept, were coming from the north, the northern kingdom first, and then they come to the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is now under attack, under siege. And they were being uh, 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 attacked, and there, here's this uh, uh, emissary that comes from King Sennacherib, and he speaks blasphemous words against Yahweh and against the people of, of Israel, and he says, I'm going to destroy you. There's nothing that you can do. And when Hezekiah hears this report, he begins to tremble. He begins to shake. He doesn't know what else he can do. He's already stripped all the gold and the treasure out of the, the, out of the temple and given it as tribute to Sennacherib. There's nothing he can do to save his nation. He's desperate. He's so desperate that he does what a lot of people do. He humbles himself. He puts on sackcloth. He goes into the temple and he, and he seeks the Lord. And he asked him for help. He, he repents. And in that dark, uncertain time, God sends the, uh, the prophet Isaiah into the midst. And he says, Hezekiah, don't worry. I'm going to deliver you. You're going to be uh, freed from this uh, adversity. And in fact, that exactly happens. In 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35, it tells us, Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home. They were delivered. Just as the Lord promised from what seemed like an impossible situation.
dark, uncertain, impossible. And Isaiah prophesied that when Sennacherib got home, that he would be killed, that he would be assassinated, and that's exactly what happened. He was assassinated while he was worshiping in the temple of his God. And in the midst of this uncertain, dark, almost impossible time, comes another prophet, the prophet Micah. He has a prophecy in the midst of all this. And it's a word of judgment, and it's a word of hope. Now, that's the way it always is. It's always that way. It's always a word of judgment, and then it's a word of hope. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is a word of judgment, and then it is a word of hope. We are in our sin, but God has made a way for us to be delivered from our sin through Christ. That's the way it always is, and that's the way it was in this case. And in in uncertain times, God has some wonderful truths that emerge from these prophecies that encourage us. There are three of them. First, in uncertain times, remember that God knows your biggest problems. God knows your biggest problems. Judah would escape judgment by the Assyrians, but they are not going to escape judgment altogether. In fact, he says in Micah chapter 5 and verse 1, Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod, they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now here, Micah looks ahead to the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. We're talking 136 years in the future. Here's a, see this, this big time jump here, this time gap? And, and, and this is the fall of the southern kingdom. And here's what he says. You can muster your troops. You can call out the military. You can do all that you can, but nothing is going to prevent the, your enemy from just coming right through your defenses and coming right to the king and smiting him across the face with a rod. So many soldiers are encamped uh, around Jerusalem that Micah calls her the, the daughter of troops. The, or that's a daughter was a way of speaking of a city. You're a city of troops. That characterizes your nature. You're surrounded by troops. And history tells us in 2 Kings chapter 25 that when Zedekiah, the king of Judah at that time, and his officials realize how hopeless the situation is, they try to escape out the wall during the night from the Babylonians. But the Babylonians capture them. And what they do, what's the first thing they do? They take the king and they smite him across the face with a rod. Then they execute his sons before his eyes. And then they put out his eyes. And they bind him and they take him to Babylon where he lives out the rest of his days in exile. They utterly humiliated him. There was nothing that they could do to prevent it. But now, listen, both kingdoms are gone. Israel as a nation 
no longer exists. So how can all these prophecies that these prophets and Micah in chapter 4, how can all of these prophecies possibly be fulfilled? It just seems impossible. But you see, when you look back, you see that, that Micah promised that the nation that of Israel is going to be united that the people are going to return to the land, that Jerusalem is going to be the most important city in the world, that the temple is going to be rebuilt, that the worship of Yahweh is going to be restored. Instead of the Gentiles coming against the Jerusalem in battle, that they're going to come to worship the Messiah. There's going to be peace among the nations because they would obey God's truth, submit themselves to the Messiah, Messiah, that that, that they're going to destroy their instruments of war. This is what Micah is saying. And now here, the kingdoms are gone. How could this ever possibly happen? Well, that's where verse 2 comes in. He says there, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, When everything looks dark, when everything looks uncertain, when things look hopeless, don't miss that little conjunction. But, but God, God is not through. God is going to fulfill his promises. God knows your biggest problems, whatever they are, everything. And, and even though it looks uncertain, and though you don't see how it could ever work out, God is still at work. And, he's, he, and listen, he's at work in your life. To, and he, will, he is going to fulfill his, his purposes and his plans and his promises in your life. Even when it looks like it's impossible. Even when it's so uncertain, he will do that. When Mary McLaren was 13 years old, she was dog-sitting a beagle named Otis for some friends while they were away. And she decided to take Otis for a walk. And they hadn't gone very far when suddenly panic and terror overcame Mary. She suddenly realized that she was, that she was lost. And she had no idea how to get back to the place where she was. I mean, she had not written down the address of the house where she was staying. She didn't have a cell phone. And she was horrified. She didn't know that if every step she was getting closer where she needed to be or she was getting farther away. And she became so panicked that she just stops and she just begins to cry. Fortunately, a, a lady in the neighborhood saw her and she came over to her. And Mary explained her situation that she was gone. And, and this lady recognized Otis, the dog, and she knew what house he belonged to. So she walked back with her to her home, to this home where she needed to, to be. Now, we all get lost at, at times, uh, but Mary's situation is different. See, she, she suffers from a, a neurological disorder Uh, called developmental topographical uh, disorientation. It affects about 2% of the population. Now, before you hit your spouse and start accusing them of having that, 
uh, to think twice, right? And uh, see, she gets lost in the most familiar environments, and she has no no sense of direction, no sense of orientation. Uh, people in in this condition, with Mary's condition, they can get lost in their own home and, and not know where they. They depend upon other people to guide them. It, it's an amazing thing. And you see, when the Bible describes our condition, it describes us as being lost. We are lost. We're separated from God. We don't know how to get to God. There's a great distance between us and him. We, can't, we don't know how to get there. We're separated from him. And, and that's why God sent Jesus. See, it's, it's important to remember that Christ, Christmas began with a crisis. Friends, we have a crisis in our lives. The army of sin is sieging our lives. It wants to control us. It wants to dominate us. It wants to destroy us. And it will. But God sent Jesus to, to show us the way, to show us the truth. See, he knows our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is that we are separated from God by our sin. That's, that's the need of every single person in the world. We need God. We need to, to, be, to return to God through Jesus Christ. And listen what God did. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I use that verse so many times when I'm preaching because listen what it says. We were sinners, separated from God, lost, but God, but God loved us. And he took care of our biggest problem. He paid for our sin so that we could be restored to God, to a relationship with God. And and listen, Christian, the same God that saved you when you were lost promises that he'll meet the deepest needs of your life as you continue to walk with him. Romans 8.32 says, but... He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? I mean, if God would give the most valuable thing in in his life, his own son, to suffer in our place, how much more will God not give us the things that we need in our life? You see... That's why I, I love those first two words of that, of that verse of Romans 5, 8, but God. See, your, your marriage may be hurting, may be broken right now, but God. God can make a difference if we're willing to turn to him. See, your kids may be going in the wrong direction, but God. God can get that son or daughter back on the right track. We seek him. You see, you may be depressed, but God can restore your joy. You may be worried about your finances, 
But God can provide for you whatever you need. You may, your body may be sick, but God can give you grace in the midst of that. God can give you healing. He does sometimes. You may be stressed about your job, but God can give you peace and he can give you patience in the middle of that. You may not know what steps to take in your future, but God can guide you into what not only what's next, but he can guide you into what is best. See, when everything seems dark, uncertain, even impossible, remember, God knows your biggest problem. God has a solution for whatever it is you're facing in life. See, and that, that brings us, the next flows logically to this next great truth that emerges from this text. God always fulfills his promises. Micah chapter 5 in verse 2 says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are not long, are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Now, Bethlehem was a small, obscure place. It, it was a place that was so small that it wasn't even listed among the principal places of Judah. And in fact, it says it was too little to be among the clans of Judah. Now, a clan was the smallest unit of measure in terms of population. A clan was a, a group of people less than 1,000 people. And so if Bethlehem doesn't even, can't even number among the clans, this is a sparsely populated or very small area, a rural area. Bethlehem means house of bread. It, it was a small village in the region of Ephrathah. And Ephrathah means fruitful. That's because it was an area where uh, they grew uh, crops of various uh, grains. They had orchards and vineyards there. It was, it was very fruitful, uh, very um, fertile. And so when you come to Bethlehem, we're talking about a place that's just, it's a, it's a place out in the country. There's some crops growing there and a few people around. It's nothing. And it's mentioned a couple times in the Old Testament. It's, uh, Genesis tells us that Jacob buried his wife, Rachel, there after she died in childbirth. Uh, and Samuel tells us that David, the great king of Israel, came from Bethlehem. Other than that, not much happened at Bethlehem. But the little town of Bethlehem reminds us that God uses small, unlikely places and things and people to fulfill his promises. See, God promised, he says, from you, Bethlehem, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. Notice that he says, one will go forth for me, that is, for God. In other words, this one comes forth, he's going forth to fulfill the promises of God. And by the time of Micah, all rulers in Israel, they were born in the magnificent city of Jerusalem. I mean, that's where kings were born. So, but, but remember, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. It's going to be gone. So how is this promise going to be fulfilled? 
that he's going to bring a ruler. Well, he's going to bring forth from the same place that he brought a ruler, the ruler David. He can do it. See, he, he's going to fulfill his promise. And, and notice that he, he, it says his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. He's talking about his coming. It, 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 this is not just any king. This is not just any ruler. Uh, this is one who existed in eternity. So the, it's clear. There's no question. This one is the eternal son of God who is coming to be the ruler of Israel. See, friends, God always fulfills his promises. Nothing can stop God from doing that. I mean, think about it. They've waited all these centuries for God to, to fulfill his promise. But time doesn't keep God from fulfilling his promises. Israel became hard-hearted and they rejected the Messiah when he came. But see, human sinfulness and rebellion doesn't stop God from fulfilling his promises. And, and Bethlehem was this insignificant place. But that doesn't keep God from fulfilling his promises. You know, when I, when I was in Israel uh, several years ago, I, I visited Bethlehem. And I waited in a long line in the oldest church in the world, the Church of the Nativity. And it's a church just kind of like this, maybe a little longer, but not as wide. And, and you go into a room like this, you go through a door, and then you go down into a basement. And when you get down there, there is a, a, an outcropping of rocks. It looks kind of like a, like a rock fireplace, maybe. And then at the, on the floor there, there's a, a silver 14-point star with a hole in the center. And when you get there, you can reach through the center and touch the rock to the place where scholars say Jesus was born. That is, if you can drag all the people off that are there kissing the, the, the star and the ground. People literally... They have to have people there to drag people away because they're kissing the ground, weeping, crying, praying over this little spot. Now think about that. Out of you, Bethlehem, little, insignificant, nothing town, will come a ruler. One day, this place is going to have great significance. It does. Not because of that rock. There's nothing in that rock. But because of the one who came. The one who was born. There's nothing keeps God from fulfilling his purposes. And the fact that Bethlehem was, was, was prophesied as the birthplace of the Messiah 700 years before Jesus was born is one of the prophetic markers that shows us that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. You know, there are more than 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming of the Messiah, just the coming of the Messiah, all of which were fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And based on the laws of probability alone, only Jesus, born in Nazareth, can possibly be the Messiah. You know, you, you, could, uh, you could compare it to uh, uh, dialing someone's phone number. And 
Let's hope this doesn't ring while I'm doing this. Uh, there are 7 billion cell phones in the world. Over 7 billion. Now, how do I get through 7 billion cell phones to one cell phone that I want to call? Let's say I want to call my son in North Carolina. How do I get through 7 billion cell phones to this one number that I want to dial? Well, I dial 10 digits. And what do I begin with? I begin with the area code. It's 304. Probably most of us here have that number. It covers 1.8 million people. Now, already what we've done is we've reduced the number of people. We've gone from, from 7 billion to nearly 2 million big reduction there. So when I dial that 304, I'm narrowing it down even more. But then I I, I dial the prefix, that other prefix, the three three, uh, number, uh, number, and it narrows it down to a geographical area, supposedly. But there's still thousands of people that have that geographical area code. And then so I've narrowed it down from 7 billion now to several thousand. But then I, I, I dial the last four numbers, the line number, and with each number I am getting more, I'm narrowing it down to finally that last number, I have moved from over 7 billion phones to one single phone. I've narrowed it down to my son in North Carolina. And I just have to hope that he'll answer when it rains. See, prophecy about Jesus is very similar. Now, suppose we pick up the Old Testament and dial up the Messiah. Well, it starts very broadly and it gets more narrow as it goes. Uh, uh, God begins by telling us that the Messiah... Will, will come from the human race. Uh, look at this. In, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman. What woman? Well, that's Eve. And between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And this is God talking to the, the, the serpent, the, the, the devil. And he's telling him that he is going to send a Messiah, a Savior. And who's the, where does he go? He goes to the woman. So there's, from the human race, one woman. And the only woman in the world at that time. And that eliminates all the animals. That eliminates all the angels. We know that the Messiah is going to come from a woman. It's going to be a human. And then there's one ancestor. You say, what ancestor? Well, that's Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verse 2 says, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. What's the ultimate blessing? It's the coming of the Messiah. So from the human race... To one ancestor, Abraham, we move. We narrow it down. Then Abraham had a son named Isaac. And Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. God chose Jacob to to be the one through whom the Messiah would 
come. So there's one nation, and that nation is Israel. Numbers 24, 17 says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. See, this is a prophecy of the future. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. You see, God changed Jacob's name to Israel, and then Israel had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel or the nation of Israel. And so then God narrows it down from, from a nation to a tribe, and the, the tribe of Judah. Which one would it be? It would be Judah, Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. There it is. God is just narrowing it down with every prophecy. He's tightening the focus. And then he says there's going to be one family, the family of Jesse. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from the roots will bear fruit. And Jesse had eight sons. And God chose one of those sons, and that one son was, was David. David's house was the one through whom the Messiah would come. Now, look, look at this whole picture here. There's one person, a virgin, the Virgin Mary. You see this verse, Hebrew, Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, let's put all those together right here. God begins with the human race, with woman Eve. And from Eve comes one ancestor, Abraham. From Abraham comes one nation, Israel. And from Israel comes one tribe, Judah. And from Judah comes one family, Jesse. And from Jesse comes one household, David. And from David comes one virgin, Mary. And then it culminates in one place, Bethlehem. And that brings us back to verse 2 of Micah 5. But as for you, Bethlehem, afraid, too little to be among the clans of Judah, but you But from you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Now think about it. This is just eight prophecies about the Messiah. Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies. God always fulfills his prophecy. He has worked down through the ages to make sure that his promises are fulfilled. And listen, he will make sure that the promises that he's made in your life are fulfilled. He is just as faithful to fulfill the promises he has made in your life as he is to fulfill the promises he made in the Messiah because they go hand in hand. You know, things may look hopeless. They may look dark. May look uncertain. But God does fulfill his promises. Now, I say that, and I remind you of that because, listen, oftentimes we do not understand God's working. We don't understand his timing. 
Look at verse 3. He says, therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. Now, friends, get this. This is a huge time gap here in this verse. We're not talking about something happening sequentially here. It refers to the fact that when Christ comes at his first advent, his people, Israel, will reject them. And and when they reject Jesus, when they rejected Jesus, then he gave them up for a time until... This, that's we're in this time right now. You see, they rejected Jesus, and now is the time of the Gentiles. This is the time of the nations. God is still working his plan to bring salvation to the world and to bless the world, even though the Jewish people have, as a whole, rejected Jesus, their Messiah. And you see, when he returns a second time, see, that was the first time was his first advent but when he turns the second time at his second advent then all of Israel are going to embrace him and acknowledge him as their Messiah and then he is going to rule and reign over them and rule and reign over all the world this will begin what we know as a thousand year reign of Christ this is the millennial reign now friends this is yet future it's as certain as the coming of Christ at Bethlehem happened. And see, in one sense, Bethlehem is an immediate fulfillment on which we base the future prophecies, and we have faith in those because of what he has done. We often don't understand God's timing, but we can be assured that God is always fulfilling his promises. And that brings us to our final thought here. God offers you his peace. Verses 4 and 5 describe what the Messiah will do as he rules over his people when, they, when, uh, when, when they've returned to him. See verse 4, and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This One will be our peace. Now see, the people of Israel had been left left unprotected and vulnerable by their kings. And they had been misled by false prophets. And even in the time of Jesus, the people were misled by their leaders, by the scribes and the Pharisees. But, But God says there's coming a time when Jesus himself will rule over his people. And it says in verse 4, he will arise and shepherd his flock. When they turn to him and they become his flock, then he's going to meet all of their needs physically and spiritually, just like we've been talking about with the good shepherd. He's going to accomplish this, it says, in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. God, whatever he does, it's going to be for the glory of God, and it's going to be done in the strength of God. It's it's an omnipotent power that God has to meet our needs. Isn't that an amazing thing? And you see, there's no lack of power for him to accomplish what he needs, what he wants to. And it brings glory to God. And he says, and they will remain, Israel will remain faithful 
to Jesus. Why? Because at that time, he will be great to the ends of the earth. There's going to be no pockets of resistance. There's going to be any threat to our security by alien forces outside our walls. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God that Jesus is Lord. This is the time when Jesus will be the ruler that is promised. A ruler. Not a good buddy, but the ruler, the sovereign God over the earth. And listen, he says, this one will be our peace. And yes, this includes the final earthly political peace. Micah describes this earlier in Micah chapter 4 and verse 3. He says, he shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plow. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. One day, the ruler, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, will return and make that a reality. Now, that's a gift under the tree. In a sense, it's it's wrapped. We've got, a, we've got a general idea of it, but we don't know the reality of it, the wonder of it, the majesty of it. We haven't unwrapped it yet. But friends, it's coming. It's coming. Don't minimize the glory of it. We sing about that in that great Christmas carol. He rules the world with truth and grace. He makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. Friends, sometimes we sing those words. We don't have a clue what we're singing. We have, no, we have no clue what we're singing. We're singing about Jesus ruling and reigning on the earth. And he will. But listen, there is a deeper peace that must happen before there's real peace on the earth. There has to be a peace between God and man. Our sin has to be taken out of the way. And God's wrath has to be appeased. And that's why God sent Jesus. That's why he came into the world. Because when he came into the world, he took upon himself all our sin. And then God, all of God's wrath was spent upon his own son, our sin, so that that could be moved out of the way. So that there could be real peace between us and God. Notice that, that Micah doesn't say that he will bring peace or that he will give us peace, but he says that he will be our peace. He describes this at the end of his, of his book, chapter 7, verse 18. He says, who is a God like you? Wasn't that a great question? Who's like our God? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? How can he pass over our transgressions? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. How could this see this is the work for the Messiah yet to do? And he did come and he did all of that on the cross. He tread 
our sins, our iniquities underfoot. And now he can cast our sins into the depths of the sea. That's removed. So now there can be peace between us and God. And Jesus says in, in Matthew 14, excuse me, John 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you do I give you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Friend, that's why we say glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom God is pleased. Listen, real peace is not simply being delivered from your circumstances. Sometimes people are praying, you know, God, get me out of this situation, my circumstances, so I can have peace. Real, real peace is not necessarily being delivered out of your circumstances. Real peace is having Christ with you in the midst of your difficulties. Because he is your peace. He lives, he will live within you, and he will give you the peace to face whatever comes. He's our hope. You know, if Jesus is ruling in your life this Christmas, you can have peace. If he's not, there can't be peace. If you go to London, England, you could travel to a hospital called the Hospital of St. Mary of Bethlehem. It's the oldest institution dedicated to the confinement and care of mentally ill in all of England. It was started in, in 1247, and it became exclusively a mental hospital. Now, this is a terrible thing to think about. But especially in the 1800s, people from London would travel to uh, the hospital of, of St. Mary's at Bethlehem to watch the inmates who were classified insane. They would, they would watch them in their behavior as a kind of entertainment. And um, it, it, it's, really, it's really, really kind of a sad thing to think about. And over the years, the name of the hospital began to be shortened. First, it was called Bethlehem Hospital. And then it became Bethlehem Hospital. And then Bethlehem became further corrupted with kind of a, a Cockney accent, and it became Bedlam. They just referred to it as Bedlam. And so when people would go to Bedlam, uh, they would see a confusion, chaos, sorrow, madness, and a world out of control. And if you, today, if you look up the word Bedlam in the dictionary, you'll see it means confusion, chaos, craziness, insanity. Bedlam. Let me ask you a question. Is your life right now Bethlehem or Bethlehem? See, if, if you know Christ, it'll be Bethlehem. It'll be peace. But without Christ, your life is Bethlehem. And I, I, I want to I encourage you. I want to encourage you. Look to Jesus to give you peace. He will rule and he will reign and he will give order and he will give meaning and purpose and he will give freedom in your life.
and you will bring honor and glory to him. Look to Jesus to give you peace. Let's pray.